When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, so I'm back. I passed my OBGYN boards. I am so glad that's over. And many thanks to Diane Evans. If you are an OB resident, I think it's not a bad idea to check out PassingYourOBGYNBoards.com or look up Diane Evans at PassOBGYNBoards on Twitter. Uh, She did a great job preparing me for my oral exam with a a mock, and I really couldn't have done it without her. Passing Your OBGYN Boards is a huge milestone. I mean, just looking back, I started thinking about going into medical school in 2003 and then matriculated to the University of Toledo in 2006. I chose my specialty and matched in 2009 and then went to Wright State University's combined program with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton for my OBGYN residency. Along the way, taking step one, step two, step three of the USMLE, and then each year an in-service CREOG exam. In 2014, took the written board certification qualifying exam from the American Board of OBGYN, collected cases for the past two years, and then prepared a quite extensive Excel spreadsheet with uh, the notable cases as as are required by the board, and then finally took the exam to become board certified. Uh, Each specialty is a little bit different in terms of how it certifies its members, but it's a long process. Like this has been quite the road. And now I'm free from taking any standardized exam for six years to do the maintenance of certification stuff. So at any rate, huge burden uh, lifted off of me. I've got some more time now to devote to producing these podcasts. And we've got the Match Smarter segment with Doximity and have teamed up with Osmosis to offer some more study smarter series podcasts going through question dissections, doing some content reviews, shelf exam reviews, things like that using their excellent open osmosis platform. So you should check out open.osmosis.org and you can see their free videos on various topics as well as a huge question bank of high quality free USMLE and Comlex uh, style board exam practice questions or sign up for their premium platform. I, I think it's a great resource and and probably will become the next essential resource for board study on par with 
first aid and Golion and and the things that we all know and love. So again, thanks for listening, everyone. This is a lot of work, but it's worth it. I hope it's helping you guys and gives you something to do on your commutes or while you're working out, cleaning your apartments or cooking your meals, whatever it is you do while you listen. Uh, I do appreciate it. Glad it's over. More time to work on inside the boards. I've got some speaking engagements coming up next next week at Notre Dame, unrelated to inside the boards, uh, more so towards like the bioethics side of things. But uh, with ITB, I also have more time to work on our flagship course on how to take a board exam. So again, stay tuned for that as well. And if you need any help with your exams, whether it's a shelf step two or planning step one let me know info at inside the boards or look us up on twitter at boards insider facebook.com slash inside the boards or even on instagram at inside the boards uh, i'd be happy to help to see what i can do to help you succeed in medical school and beyond there's a lot of resources out there and i've either worked with many companies or uh, hardcore reviewed a bunch of platforms and resources and would be happy to make some recommendations there too. As I told you before, we've teamed up with Doximity to connect you with program directors, residents from top programs to help you navigate your specialty choice and the residency process as a whole. You should check out the Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com to get the most transparent and useful advice on programs you're considering. Doximity is the leading professional network for doctors. Match smarter with Doximity's Residency Navigator, residency.doximity.com. And we've got a pretty good lineup of guests coming up in future shows. Hopefully I'll be able to release these uh, about once a week. We've got Dr. Jonathan Rizzuli, who is a neurosurgery resident in his fifth year at Mount Sinai. Uh, we had Dr. Peter Taub to discuss plastic surgery. We've got Stephen Gangloff, who's a neurology resident at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Ravi Katarif to discuss emergency medicine. Sammy Zakaria, who is an associate program director at Johns Hopkins Bayview Internal Medicine Residency Program. Nathaniel P. Morris, who is a resident in psychiatry at Stanford and also an accomplished author who's written for Washington Post, Scientific American, Chicago Tribune, The Wall Street Journal, you name it. And a number of other guests to come on the show and discuss particular specialties. But Today's episode, we wanted to take kind of a broader focus. So we invited Anita Taylor, who is the author of How to Choose a Medical Specialty in its sixth edition. The Kindle edition is out now, and you can head over to insidetheboards.com slash episode 012. That's the numbers, 012. And you can grab the link to the Kindle edition of the book now, which is $9.99 on Amazon. The hard copy edition of the book is slated to come out December 15th, and we're going to give away a few copies of that. So stay tuned uh, to that webpage, insidetheboards.com slash episode 012, to grab the link for that. If you share this show on Twitter and tag at student doctor or leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher service and send the screenshot to info at insidetheboards.com, 
you'll be entered to win a copy of Anita's book once it comes out. So we'll announce those winners around December 15th. 2016. This is a great book. It offers very specific specialty advice from over uh, 700 physicians who gave their input in helping Anita compile the information and gives you kind of like an inside view of each specialty. So you can start to think about which specialty you'd like to enter. So I think this book is ideal for medical students, of course, but even pre-meds, too, who are kind of flirting with the idea of going to med school or going through the application process. So you should pick it up, How to Choose a Medical Specialty, published by the Student Doctor Network. And as part of the Match Smarter series, uh, a few other reminders for some freebies that are out there. At that same webpage, insidetheboards.com slash episode 012. You can grab the link to complete your Doximity profile by December 30th and be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card as part of our Match Smarter series. And again, check out the Residency Navigator, especially for you fourth years out there interviewing at programs and trying to decide how you want to formulate your rank list, what questions you should be asking programs on the interview trail so that you can match smarter. If you're a pre-med interviewing for medical school or you're on the interview trail now and want some specialty-specific help with interview preparation, check out medschoolcoach.com. They are the leading company helping students achieve their medical school dreams. I, full disclosure, am an advisor for medschoolcoach.com and my friend Sahil, who leads up that company, has offered a discount to listeners who want to take advantage of their interview preparation service. So I'll put a link up on the show notes page as well so you can grab that discount. I mean, that was a lot to mention and go over, but we have a lot of plans for the Inside the Boards podcast and the platform as a whole. I mentioned a lot of companies and platforms and resources. They don't pay me to do that. I only do it because I think these offer some quality resources that can help you on your med school journey and so that you can get to the point where you too are board certified and breathe that sigh of relief and have more time. It's all about time, right? All right, so let's get into the interview with Anita. Today I have Anita Taylor, who is an associate professor currently at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School. She was previously at Oregon Health and Sciences University, where she served as the Director of Career Advising and a liaison to the AAMC's Careers in Medicine program, and the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs as well. She is the author of How to Choose a Medical Specialty, now in its sixth edition, just published again, and that's why we asked her on the show to help give some advice to students who are wondering how to make that choice ultimately of which specialty they are going to practice. So Anita, thank you for your time. I appreciate it very much. Good to be here. Thank you, Patrick. Yes, ma'am. So, all right, why did you write this book? I started this book in 1982, Ancient History, uh, first edition. And I wrote it because I found that students were having an amazingly difficult time to choose, especially there wasn't any advice. There wasn't any career counseling program of any sort nationally or even locally. And they were left to their own devices. And how did this happen? I realized was that when the rotating internships ended, 
all the physicians who now were their faculty had gone through a different pathway to find their specialty. Many of them had finished four full years of medical school. Then they were required to go into the military service or some some service uh, for two to three years after that. And then they decided at that point whether they wished to take a residency. Some did not. And general practice was still a viable way of going into practice at that point. So the students were being were being in a we were in a situation where their faculty really had not lived. They hadn't followed that same the pathway that the students were now having to follow. The faculty had at least two full years after medical school in the, you know the four full years of medical school and then two full years to to figure out what they wanted to do in medicine. And there were fewer choices. We did not have the number of specialties and subspecialties. In fact, it wasn't until the late 60s that cardiology became an actual subspecialty. Many of the subspecialties in internal medicine and even in surgical specialties just didn't exist. And they were all being done by physicians who actually have a license to practice medicine and surgery. <laughs> if you really look at your medical license, you're licensed to be a physician, and that is including everything, <laughs> including OB, which is your specialty. <laughs> which is my specialty, yes. So, And then I guess what inspired you to put it through so many different editions? The prior one was 2012, and then Student Doctor Network published the most recent edition in Kindle form uh, in September of 2016, and the hard copy should be out soon as well, correct? That is correct. I found that even though the schools were starting to make some attempts at career advising, it really wasn't until the AAMC started Careers in Medicine that there was a national focus on this. And consequently, my book needed to be out there right through this whole process, even to guide the careers in medicine program, which it did. And I think you'll find that even today, there are schools that don't really have the full advising program right from the very first day of medical school that I advocate. What does that entail? What does a kind of full spectrum um, career advice planning do for a medical student? It gives them a, a head start it makes them even more competitive for residency. There is literature now coming out. There are articles that are showing that the students who start even the very first week of medical school being focused in some area of medicine and making contacts, particularly mentors, that they have a definite advantage in forming relationships with departments in having opportunities to do research or other types of uh, clinical experiences, it, it just makes their pathway much smoother if they have the initial inclination as to what they'd like to do and start to pursue it. And then you're going to hear people say, well, they don't know what they want to do. It's too early. But in actuality, there are now some articles coming out showing that students really do have a sense of who they are and what they want to do early on because they really have 
had life experience before medical school. They've chosen a major in college. They have had work experience, many of them, and volunteer experience. And also they have been precepting, which, you know, shadowing doctors throughout their sometimes even high school years, but certainly college years and after college, if they have waited a while to apply to medical school. And so they've seen more of medicine than the students 30 years had seen. And I think that this is a real change, having the need to come into medical school and to come in with a with a running start and figure out what you're going to do early on. Well, what would you say then for the student who maybe doesn't even have really all that much of a an inkling of what specialty they'd want to go into on day one of medical school? How do they start thinking about that and approaching that subject? I will tell you, if a student has absolutely no idea what they want to do in medicine, uh, I'm going to be a little bit, um, shall we say, more skeptical as to whether they really are ready to come to medical school. To say I want to be, I want to get into medicine is is really not enough. You know, to get into medical school is a is a bar that they're trying to to get into that area. But I feel like going to graduate school, you choose a department. When I went to graduate school, I knew that I was going to be taking courses in education and in counseling. This is what my degree is in. I did not come into graduate school saying, well, maybe I'll look at the political science department or maybe I'll look at the biology department. I had a focus and I knew what I wanted to do. And this is when I think our real decisions have to be made by admissions committees as to whether a student is truly ready to come to medical school. Yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely true. I, the It has to be the vast majority of students, if not all, who who do matriculate to medical school each year, there's at least some inkling or um, inchoate sense of what they want to do. Maybe it's a handful of specialties. They like the idea of an office-based practice and long-term relationships with patients, or maybe it's just the idea of, of being a cool, suave orthopedic surgeon. One thing that really makes the difference is who are they as a person? And this is where a lot of thinking and introspection needs to be done by the student prior to applying. Because if a student has had a long-term interest, and you said uh, orthopedic surgeon is the logical one that comes to mind, very active in sports, very interested, even even thought about uh, being in another career that would involve um, not necessarily playing the sport, but being part of a team in some way. This is a real key. This is what you enjoy. And you know, Patrick, you want to choose something that you would have chosen to do, even if it wasn't a profession. You know, the happiest doctors I found when I was doing research for my book, and my book is based on research. It is based on over 700 doctors I've responded to my surveys about their specialty. And these are doctors who are board certified in these specialties, not just practicing part-time. And they have indicated get the greatest satisfaction out of their field because it fits with the rest of their interests in, in their lives as a person. And the happiest doctors are the aerospace medicine doctors because 
These are the doctors who love to fly, who love it, and whether it's flying or whether it's deep sea diving or whatever area of aerospace medicine, which there are a number, and I'm taking a very small specialty as an example, but it's so clear to me that they would do this even if they weren't paid. <laughs> this is what they love. This is what they do as a hobby. And, you know, you're not going to get that in every specialty, but there are key factors. If you like to work with your hands doing mechanical things, carpentry or car autos, fixing cars, my gosh, you've got to find a career in medicine that's going to allow you to do that. It's what you love to do in your spare time. Do it for your life career. The same way as you have great enjoyment out of helping people and counseling them and having long-term relationships with people, then by gosh, look for a primary care specialty. Maybe you really have an affinity for children. This is where you've done a lot of your volunteer work and that you, you get along with them. It, and you know, when students, when you ask them, why have they chosen especially always, it fits me. That is what they say. It just felt right. Now, what does that mean? It really means that your personality and your talents and your skills all fit into what you're going to choose to work. And these, to me, are the happiest doctors. I think that's very good general advice. So what happens when somebody picks a specialty and maybe it turns out not to be such a good fit? You can prevent this from happening. And how do you prevent it? You prevent it by coming into a medical, fortunately being accepted to medical school, even if the admissions committee decided that you didn't know what you wanted to do, it will still take you. So you get into medical school somehow. And what you find is that you have figured out that maybe you've got a strong interest in something that you're going to do with your with technologically something you know with uh, oh that you you may be majored in a subject that fits this well and you say to yourself okay I did well in that because that's what happens if you do well in something you know you start to pursue it so you end up saying to yourself where what types of specialties, and hopefully you read my book to show you the description of the specialties, because in there is a description of all the specialties, even the subspecialties, and how they fit your personality and your interests. But if you don't have that resource right in your hand, you look around and you say, okay, what specialty interest groups exist in my school? And these groups will help. Number one, because they do have students who have chosen the same thing as you, and not just students in your class, but students who are older. And these specialty interest groups, which have flourished all over the country in every medical school, has faculty who are mentors. And so you start working with that as a extracurricular type of activity. In addition, as you get into it, you'll figure out, are these people like me? Are they really people I want to spend my life with? Because as you know, you know, I'm not a physician, but my husband is. And I know that you tend to spend a lot of time with physicians in your specialty. Yep. And if you are <laughs> like them, if you are like, if you say to yourself, gee, these, these men and women are really, they think the way I do. They value the things I do. They love doing the things I do. They get excited about it. They get satisfaction from it. Then you say to yourself, hey, they are like me. But, you know, I think you find out pretty quickly. When you're with a group, well, these people aren't quite like me, you know, and it doesn't mean everybody has to be exactly the same, but you do have to share some common interests and some common ways of looking at your profession and the world around you.
So you start with that. That's one thing. Hopefully your school has some career advising programs set up, and many of them do. When I was in Oregon, I, I was the director of career advising, and we had a mon- number of things. And the, first of all, what I did was before every student started, they got a questionnaire. Mm-hmm. So that during orientation week, I already had information and granted there were only, uh, it's I guess the highest number were 130 in a class. Now, some schools are 300. I mean, it's huge. But if you're even then, they need to divide up the students into groups in some way. And the dean of student affairs has to have information on who's coming in and the director of admissions also. So consequently, I looked at that questionnaire and one of those key questions there were two actually one was list the top three specialties that you are considering now if somebody put down that they're considering psychiatry orthopedic surgery and radiology i knew there was a real need to help this person figure out what they're interested in however if they put down general pediatrics, general internal medicine, and family medicine, I said, bingo, that person is interested in, in primary care. Also, I looked at their volunteer activities, I looked at their work experience, and most importantly, or uh, I think actually one of the major factors that students and faculty never think about, because faculty mostly have not worked in the real world, is type of practice. It makes a huge difference whether you want to practice in a rural area, you're not going to be a neurosurgeon, you're, if you want to be uh, practicing in uh, even international, you can do a lot of things, but it's easier to be in primary care or emergency medicine, international medicine. You're going to be called upon to do a lot of different things there. Um, but if they want to practice in a hospital setting rather than an office setting. And you know, early on, students are differentiating. If they want to practice in a, in a suburb rather than the urban area, even there, they're starting to differentiate. And a lot depends upon where they grew up. And in many cases, the job opportunities for a spouse or partner. That's the increasingly difficult situation, is having to get your own life situation fitting with your career. That's what I did. And then we looked at that and then we tried to match them into what I started at Oregon were groups based not on specialty. We had the specialty interest groups, which are sponsored by national organizations, but I also had what we call colleges. And I started that there about five years ago, right before I left, unfortunately, but that was the way Thinking was starting to change, and I said, you've got to go into types of practice, not into specialties. So we were able to mix the general internists, general pediatricians, general obstetricians, um, even psychiatrists and family physicians into an urban group. We were able to mix those going into rural, certainly. Um, It just worked very nicely, and it's still there. It's still going, and these groups seem to find they have different types of focuses. They have different types of focuses in terms of payment because they need to learn about this. They need to know about the business of medicine. And the sooner they learn that, even in the first year of medical school, the sooner it's going to be clear to them which type of practice they're going to be, especially which type especially they're going to want to go into. What advice do you give to a student who uh, maybe he's approaching the end of third year, beginning of fourth year. They really like something as 
seemingly disparate as psychiatry and OBGYN. That's my, that was my personal struggle. Or even that student who's thinking ortho versus radiology versus, uh, psychiatry know. and OBGYN are not that different. <laughs> well, no, that is, that is true. Yeah. There's a lot of similarity that aren't as obvious. In fact, OB is probably the most difficult because you really have to be both a technician and, and a counselor. I mean, there's two sides to it. And there are a few specialties like that, not many, but there are a few where it's important to have, it's important to have skills of counseling for all of them and good communication, but it is essential in some specialties more than others. I don't necessarily want to have my surgeon being my counselor. I, I really want him to do, or she to do the technological job better. But that's, you know, it's nice when you have them both, but it's unusual because each of us is stronger in one side. I use the Myers-Briggs. Every single student in Oregon for the 28 years I was there took the Myers-Briggs and most of the faculty. <laughs> and we really found that there were clear indications from that as to what people would be more comfortable with. And it actually affirmed what they already knew about themselves and made it real. And I felt that was the basic help for that, uh, using the Myers-Briggs. Um, and um, it, it, all right, but to talk about somebody who's really unsure at that point, and I'd have to sit down and say, okay, what do you like about each of them? You do the same kind of thing as you do in any decision making that you have to say the pros and the cons. What is it? What would you give up if you didn't do the other side? Uh, of the, if you didn't become an obstetrician, gynecologist, and became a psychiatrist, what would you give up if you did the opposite? And I think you start to look for what their priorities are in life. And again, then you go back to the type of practice because you take something so different from psychiatry and OB in terms of lifestyle, which is a huge factor today mm -hmm. with controllable lifestyle entering into the picture. Uh, you know, I think uh, it starts to come clearer, not necessarily fully clear, but it does come clearer. I don't think you can combine the technology of OB in a psychiatry practice, but you certainly can combine the psychiatry skills in an OB GYM practice. And that is that is true to a, a very great extent. I definitely echo that sentiment. Okay, so let's talk specifically about your book. You, you have, what, 38 specialties and subspecialties in here. And uh, it's broken down into five different parts. Uh, part one, you kind of have general advice on picking a specialty. Part two goes into the specific specialties and subspecialties. Part three, the avant-garde specialties, uh, new areas of, of medicine that are growing or in their infancy, perhaps. <laughs> Well, they're, they're beyond that now. I think what it is when it was start when I started the book, yes. In fact, that section did not. If you had a copy of my first edition, that was not in the first edition because they really hadn't emerged yet. Uh, we're talking about 1983, 84. I mean, it's it's a long time ago. Uh, but we did not have those particular emerging specialty areas like uh, adolescent medicine, critical care medicine, geriatrics. People were doing it, but they weren't even thought of as specialties uh, in any way. And they still are not American Board of Medical Specialties approved as as separate specialties. They, they have other specialties that 
a group of specialists who do them in various ways, some full-time, some part-time. But I think students are attracted to them because it fits their, their natural interests. It goes back to who you are as a person. And oftentimes, like administrative medicine, is something that is rarely started as a recent residency graduate, although some do. Um, I knew one student who really was more of a businessman than a physician in, in his background, as well as in his, um, his attitude and his lifestyle. But uh, he wanted to be a physician and he really wanted to be an administrator and he did get the MBA and he did, you know, and he did it early. Now, today, this is the combined MD MBA, which is also in the book somewhat. Uh, there is some discussion of that, you know, is becoming more popular. But it's rare that you do that right out of residency um, because doctors sort of gradually get into that as they get into their practice years and decide that that's the piece of it that they particularly like. Okay, then the fourth section, as you said, was practice options. And that's really, to me, that I also added. I added those in the later editions. The first edition was a little thinner than this than the current edition. Uh, <laughs> and, in the, and in that section, you discuss some of those, those things that maybe aren't uh, paradigms in which uh, people think about uh, medicine as medical students, and that is things like what is office-based practice, hospital-based practice, working in an institutional setting, or, or are there like non-clinical pathways? Well, and also things like dance medicine. I mean, there there really are some very interesting, shall we say, epi specialties. They're small parts of specialties, but they involve uh, even more than one of the recognized specialties, but sure. it's something that fits you as a person. Um, certainly things like wilderness medicine, which, you know, you say, well, what in the world is that? Well, there are individuals who are members of the Wilderness Medical Society, and uh, they are the people who are working at a national park, who are, a lot of them are emergency medicine trained or family medicine trained, but it's a broad area of medicine that you don't even think about that's there. Cruise medicine, we just came back from a cruise. There's, in fact, on the large ships, I've been told on these 6,000 passenger ships, there are eight physicians on those ships. And at one time I did write an article on cruise medicine that we went on a cruise ship and I spent the whole time interviewing the doctor and the nurse and watching practice. I don't do that anymore. So, sounds I like a vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, I enjoyed it. It was very, it was interesting because at that point I was interested in, in knowing more. And that's how I got into this was I started to realize all of these small areas of interest that doctors are doing. Certainly, you know, international medicine wasn't well known back in the 80s. So all of this I added because I start suddenly it exploded with these small areas of, of expertise that that actually were a reflection of the individual's interests. Yeah. And then um, the fifth part of the book um, covers, I would say, the the nitty gritty aspects of residency that's part five after you've chosen a specialty including an overview of the matching process how applications work in residency some info about the military match what couples uh, should consider who are couples matching and then even how to face the problem of being unmatched changing specialties 
during residency and etc. Um, so this book is well worth checking out, I, I think, especially for your early on medical students, uh, but even those who are in their uh, third year or um, in their fourth year who are on the interview trail, who want an overview of uh, the various options that are out there, or or just to even get info about the specialty they've chosen and some practical advice on interviewing and, and like I said, the nitty-gritty portions of a residency application. But the real meat of the book, I guess, um, uh, to make this judgment, would be kind of like the part two and three where you're discussing the particular specialties. So, Yeah, the last part's in there because nothing else was there. This is well before when I put that in initially, it was because there just wasn't any information. And the one reason why students were having such a hard time initially was the fact that they just didn't know where to go for any resource. So I did add that. This is not the definitive information on residencies, but sure. it does give you a start to think about how to approach it. So. And I think this book's probably um, also would or would benefit pre-meds who are thinking, oh, maybe I should go into, you know, medical school or even those flirting with the idea of becoming a pre-med to give an idea of what, you know, what's going to happen down the line if they do get into med school and start the uh, decades long journey to becoming a practitioner. But each of the sections in part two, each of the approved ABMS specialties is is kind of set up similarly, correct? Yes. Let's say I was a third year uh, a, a medical student. I uh, wanted to go into OB. Opens with some fast facts about the number of first year residency positions offered for OB. That's uh, uh, a little over 1,300. The length of the training, which is four years. How many residency programs? The number of residents currently in training. The number of U.S board certified OBGYNs, which is 28,000. Average annual compensation is what? 315,000. Man, I need to, well, I'm in the, I'm in the military. So <laughs> I was gonna say, I need to find another job, but. And that includes subspecialists in OB and it includes people who do a lot of surgery, a lot of gynecological surgery. So it's an overview of all of the obstetricians, gynecologists. Yeah. You know, these are national figures that come out and they're, they're, they're going up. They're going up every year. Mean work hours per week, 57. Um, uh, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, but then uh, each of the sections has info on requirements that residency in that specialty will have, how board certification works, a little bit about specialty projections as far as the workforce goes, types of practice, and then a kind of personal look at the composite picture of a specialty. So why choose OBGYN? And then what what do you like most about OBGYN? And you, you have taken and interviewed, um, how many people did you say total? There were over 700 surveys, and I did it by networking with doctors in all types of practice. And I would say, you know, I'd write to a doctor uh, that I knew and say, give me some names of friends in that you graduated with in other cities and other types of practice. And I just got so many suggestions from doctors all over the country. And yeah. it was wonderful. Um, now, these questions that you're quoting, they all came from medical students. 
I asked the medical students, what do you know? I was teaching a course on this at, Bowman, at uh, Wake Forest at the time. And, uh, and I said, you know, tell me, what do you want to know about the specialties? You know, what would help you to understand what you're trying to get into? So those were their questions. This is almost a section that is crowdsourced, you might say, both in terms of the questions asked and the answers provided. Can you tell me a little bit about the job values uh, selection portion of these? Yeah, again, my um, and in the beginning of the book, I st the very beginning of the book has a section called how to use this book. Yes. In my surveys to all over five, seven hundred physicians. You know, I had a pretest, first of all, with a selected group of physicians listing their job values. And so the top choices are the ones that are listed on page seven of the book. Creativity, good income, variety, security, independence, decision-making, prestige, achievement, working with people, sufficient time off, working with my hands, working with my mind, taking care of people, and feedback from others. Now, there's the same person I would not expect to have a top job value of working with my hands and working with my mind. It's, it comes up, but they, one would have priority, I would think. Sure. Um, anyway, each respondent was asked to choose four of those follow of the, well, I had 14 job values that, that I got out of the, of the pretest, and I asked each respondent to choose four of them that are the most important to him or her. So at the end of the chapter, each chapter, I have listed the top four values that came out of the 700 surveys for each specialty. So if we go back to the obstetrician-gynecologist, actually, working with people was number one. Taking care of people was number two, and, in, and and that's very different than working with people in some ways, but yet it isn't for the obstetrician-gynecologist. As I said, yours is especially that has both sides. Uh, you have the surgical obstetrician-gynecologist, and you also have the women's health, more recently the women's health counseling talking about uh, fertility and about, you know, different, not so surgical as the one who is taking care of people. And then variety and working with my hands were the other two that came up out of the four. Now, all of them ranked equally, which was fascinating. That is interesting. So it does show in your specialty, there is a real diversity of people there, unlike other specialties that are much more homogeneous. Uh, I, the next chapter, ophthalmology, number one, working with my hands. Again, taking care of people. That's a very surgical. Taking care of people is surgical in many ways, more than working with, with people. So that's a big distinction. Do you want to take care of people or do you want to work with people? You want your patients to talk back to you is what it really means. Because the radiologist has to work with people, of course, but they don't necessarily have to take care of people, except interventional radiology, I suppose. But Yeah, that's a new chapter in the book, by the way, in the sixth edition. I added it at their request. They contacted me. Oh, and really? it was it was really the impetus to do the sixth edition was the interventional radiology uh, organizationally contacted me and said, we're not in there and we want to be. And so I had a very good support from their organizational units to to get 
you know, people to answer my original surveys. I've never changed the survey. It's always been the same. And also complete the job values. But if you look at radiologists, you know, there's nothing about people. Number <laughs> one is independence for the diagnostic radiologist. Independence, sufficient time off. Number two, working with my mind. And number two, again, number two, creativity. There was a tie for second place. The first was independence. That's very different from the obstetrician gynecologist. It's very different from the surgeon. It's very different from the family physician. And that's what I want people to do as they're reading this book or, you know, or looking at it to make their own choices. Because this is a, a self-quiz here. This is to use, the reader has to kind of analyze, who am I? And they're all good. There's nothing negative. And we need all kinds of specialists. And so it's just matching who you are with the specialty. Well, it's a great resource. Um, and we're going to be giving away a few copies. So last question. What one piece of advice would you give to students as they face the question of which specialty do I go into? When you first thought about becoming a physician, what did you see yourself doing? What was the reason? And to me, this is key because somewhere, somehow they were motivated and it could be as simple as I was good in science. All yeah. right, let's pursue that because that says something. Or people kept asking me for advice about things and I realized that I like to help people. Because you know, the two reasons that people have, the student, every student when I've said, why do you want to be a doctor? It was to help people and, and because it's, it's intellectually stimulating and science, I was good in science, you know, the two things. Um, I feel that if you can figure out at least that initially, then you're on the pathway to start thinking about which direction to go into, because there really are those two directions. Perfect. Thank you so much, Anita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This episode's music is brought to you by Hopeless Records. That's hopelessrecords.com. The tune is Parachute off the Dangerous Summer's album Warpaint. The Dangerous Summer completed their run as a band in 2013, but you should look up AJ Perdomo. That's at AJ Perdomo, P-E-R-D-O-M-O, on Twitter. He's an incredibly incisive lyricist, an active tweeter, and still involved in making music. Well worth listening to all of the Dangerous Summer's past albums, as well as some of the work that AJ has done on the side. So thanks, Hopeless Records, for giving us permission to use this song. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.